Strong Tower. How we doing? Good, good. John's blessed. I hear you, John. I hear you. Amen, amen. Well, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 44 today. Isaiah chapter 44. Use your phone, your tablet, your Bible, whatever you got. Grab a copy of God's Word. Again, we want to welcome the Southeastern students. We're glad y'all can join us today as we worship Jesus together. We're going to be Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 23. 6 through 23. So if you didn't get your Bible reading in this week, it's going to be a little longer passage. We got your back. Hear the reading of God's Word. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and he's satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am worn, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, 
Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, the uh, removing our idols, removing our idols. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word that you speak to us. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would now come and work upon our hearts the truth of your word, that we might be transformed for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may have seen Ted Giannoulis, even if you have never maybe seen his face or even heard his name. And that's because about 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago, he started playing this character called the San Diego Chicken. Maybe you've heard of it before or seen him in pictures because in 1974, he became this uh, well-known figure in sports history. The San Diego Chicken started as kind of a joke, actually. He he was working as a 20-year-old college student. He was out uh, you know, doing some work for the radio station he worked for. And they said, how about you go to the baseball game wearing this big chicken suit and see if you can get people to engage with you and promote our, our radio station. And so nobody before had ever done anything like that. He thought it was a great idea because he could be kind of goofy and have some fun and get into baseball games for free. And so he goes to the Padres game dressed in this crazy looking chicken suit And he didn't expect that everyone would fall in love with him in the chicken suit. In fact, everyone was excited because he's telling jokes and he's interacting with all the fans and everyone wants to take pictures with him. And word starts to get out to all the other baseball teams that there's this chicken mascot. And so now everybody's calling him saying, I want to get a chicken. I I want you to come work for us. And and everyone seems to love you. I mean, this is before things went viral, but everybody was talking about it. And so they started offering him serious money. I mean, they were making him offers that the baseball players didn't make, saying, we, we want you to come work for us. And he realized that, that this was his opportunity to be famous. And so he, he started having photo ops with politicians and presidential candidates and celebrities and all these different people who wanted to have a picture with the chicken. And everybody wanted to be with the chicken, but no one knew who he was. This is what's interesting. The blessing of his fame came with this reality that no one had ever actually seen his face. No one knew who he was. No one knew the real Ted. He didn't have any family. He didn't have very many close friends. He was just the guy in the chicken suit that no one had ever seen his face. And as he came to the end of his career and he started reflecting on what that was like, he said this in an interview, He said, at first, I discovered an untapped freedom in that suit. It was like I was no longer Ted. And now, years later, I have plenty of chicken stories, but I'm afraid I have no Ted stories. I have no Ted stories. In other words, he he lost himself in trying to be somebody else. Right? He lost a sense of his identity, who he was in that suit. And we've all done that, right? We, we've all tried to be somebody else. I mean, hopefully you probably haven't walked around for 40 years in a chicken suit, but, but you've tried to be somebody else. And, and in, in a sense, there's nothing really wrong with that in, in, in one way, right? Everybody wants to be better. 
We all want to be a better friend or a better parent or a better spouse or whatever it is in your life. You want to be better than what you are today. And that's not really wrong, but what it brings up is what really makes us who we are. Right? What, what really makes us who we are? Is it that we have more achievements than we have? Is it that we can gain the approval of a certain group of people? Is it that we can have people look at us and say, wow, they're so intelligent or they're so you know, uh, good at this or that? And, and we're hoping that we can kind of define ourselves by something else, something better than who we really are. right? And so we start asking this question, who, who am I? And, and it's kind of a, a tough question to put down. And the Bible says that if you start filling that void, you start answering that question with things that are outside of him, it's called idolatry. And this is what we're going to look at today, is this idea of idolatry, because I think many of us, we may think of idolatry, and immediately our mind goes to like little figurines or, or pictures of, of somebody or, or something that you bow down to and you light candles, but, but that's not necessarily what the Bible means when it talks about idolatry. In fact, idolatry, if you want to have a clear definition, is simply this. You make a good thing, into a God thing. You make a good thing into a God thing. It goes from something God designed to something now I want to to find my meaning, my purpose, my identity in that thing. And it was never meant to do that. And so you could really add a third category. It's, It's a good thing becoming a God thing because I want to become something. I mean, that really gets to the motivation. Why? Why would we do that? It's because I want to be somebody different. And so I'll I'll idolize power because I want to be somebody with influence. I want to be somebody with followers. I want to be somebody that people look up to, right? And and so we'll we'll idolize control because I want to have a sense of control in my life and I want to make sure everything works the way it should work. And You see that? I, I want to be somebody different than I really am. And the Bible says when you get into that kind of idolatry, there's consequences, that we idolize and then we lose a sense of our identity. We lose who we are. And this brings us to the series that we're in. We're in the book of Isaiah, walking through this book, and we've come now to the point in the book where Isaiah is addressing Israel in exile. And if you're new to the Bible, the exile was the time when Israel had to move out of their land. They had to leave the land because of God's judgment upon their, their lack of repentance. And so they leave the land and they go to Babylon. And as they go to Babylon, they leave behind their old life, right? All their family, their friends, their house, their their way of doing things, everything was left behind, and now they're in exile in this new land. And in the new land, they're kind of going through an identity crisis. They're asking questions like, who are we without our former life? And as they look around in Babylon, the name Babylon actually means the gate of the gods, In other words, Babylon was full of idols. Babylon was the place that people traveled to go find themselves, to go figure out who am I and what can I worship, and and if I worship this thing, maybe it'll make me into the person I really want to be. It'll bring my dreams and my comforts and my desires if I can just get to Babylon, the gate of the gods. Sound familiar? I mean, it's not really that far from our world today. Living in Babylon was a lot like living in America. And here they are trying to figure out who they are. And as they look around, they see these idols that make promises. And God is saying, 
I want you to find your identity in me. Because as you look at those things, as you're tempted by those things, it's not going to bring what you think it's going to bring. And so I want to look at this today and ask, how do we identify our idols, but then how do we, how do we find our identity in God? That's what we're going to look at today. And so first, if you're taking notes, we've got to look at the sufficiency of God. Look at verse 6 as Isaiah begins this section. He says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. I love this because God starts off by reminding them of who he is. He, he says, don't forget, I, I'm your redeemer. I, I, am, I am the one who's your king. I am also the one who's, who's the general of, of the host of heaven. Right? That, that's who I am. But, but if you forget what I've done, I want you to, to hear that, uh, that if, if you want to make an argument for the idols, I'm, I'm ready to listen, right? If, if you want to bring their case before me, I'm ready to listen because I want to hear if any of your idols have done what I've done for you. Have any of them established you as a people? Have, have any of them cared for you like I've cared for you? Have any of them shown you grace and mercy generation after generation? And he kind of goes down this list saying, these are all the things I've done for you. Now, how about they bring their case? I mean, it sounds almost a little egotistical if it was anybody but God. But God, knowing and confident that, that it's true about Him because He is unlike anybody else, He says, just bring the case. Let's hear it. And then He, he doesn't just argue from what He's done. He also argues from who He is. He says, I am the first and I am the last. The Apostle John, centuries later, would put these words into the, the lips of Jesus as he records his vision in the book of Revelation of what he hears Jesus saying. In Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Right As Jesus is claiming his, his own divinity and he's saying what, what was said about God in the Old Testament is true of me today, I am the first and the last. It's God appealing to his godness. Right? Stick, stick with me for a second. What he's saying is, when he's saying, I am the first, he's saying that I don't get my life from anything else. I, I don't have another source that I'm drawing upon. I am the first. I, I am self-sufficient, self-existent. I don't need anybody else. But as the last, I also am the supreme end of all things. That There's nothing after me. There's nothing before me. I am the one who, who sets all things. And so what he's saying is, I'm sufficient. The idols out there, they, they have another source. They, they have an end. But I have no beginning, I have no end, and therefore I am sufficient. I am enough. See, God is sufficient because he's the source. He's the source. It reminds me of uh, the uh, three Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel. You may have heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were living during the Babylonian exile. They're, they're living in a time where, where God's people were, were being warned about in Isaiah, but now it's happening. Now it's happening in, in their time. And, and here they are, these three young men, living in a, in a place uh, where Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, he, this egotistical man, he, he's saying, I want everyone to bow down to this golden image, this idol that, that I want everyone to, to worship. And they hear about it and and they refuse, right? They say, we're, 
we're not going to do what you say. We, we have another God. We have one God that we worship, and it's not your image. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar gets furious. He's like, you know, you have to listen to me. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one in power. You're going to listen. And so if you don't listen, you're going to be thrown in the fire. Right? And we know the story that, that even though he makes that threat and he's full of rage and anger, this is what they say to him. Actually, first, he, he says, what God will save you? That's the question he asks. What, what God is going to deliver you out of this? And this is what they say to him. They say, oh, king, we have no need to answer you. Our God is able to deliver us. But if he chooses not to, we will not bow down. Do you hear that? What, what they're saying is, listen, our God is able. He, he is sufficient. He, he is able to deliver us, to set us free from whatever you may have for us. But if he chooses not to, he's still enough. Because what God does doesn't change who he is. You hear that? What he does, whether he does the things you like or the things you think he should do, doesn't change the fact of who he is, that he is sufficient. He's enough. C.S. Lewis tried to make this same point in his, his uh, stories, the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, he has this Christ figure, Aslan, who's, who's a lion. And in one of the books, there's a young lady named Jill, and she's running through this like, enchanted forest, and she goes through the forest, and she comes out into this open area. And in the open area is this large stream that's flowing with, with wonderful water, and she's dying of thirst, and, and so she comes to the stream, but she freezes as soon as she sees it. She doesn't run towards it even though she's thirsty, because right next to the stream is the lion. And she didn't know anything about the lion, she's terrified about the lion, so she sees it, and she pauses, and then she says, hey, uh, are you going to move? Like, because... I, I'm thirsty. I'm, I'm really dying of thirst here. I, I need you to move. And he doesn't respond at all. He just looks at her, doesn't move. And she says, well, I, I really need you to move. If you could just move, then, then I will, I'll be able to get my drink. And he just pauses, doesn't say anything, still quiet. And then she says, well, if I come, will, will you just promise not to harm me? Promise not to do anything to me. And then he speaks. He says, oh, I won't. I can't make that promise. She's like, well, what am I supposed to do? How am I going to get this? Because I'm terrified. I can't come to you. And he says, well, I guess you're going to die of thirst. She says, well, then I'm going to leave. I'm, I'm going to go find somewhere else. I'm going to go to another stream. And this, this is what he says, the lion, the Christ figure in the story. He says, there is no other stream. There's no other stream. You have to come. In all your fear, in all your anxiety, in, in all your wondering of what's going to happen, you have to come. There is no other stream. Right? God is the only source. All things begin and they end with Him. And therefore, He's sufficient. He has to be enough because He's the only one from beginning to end. We can go looking, we can go searching, but nothing else will satisfy like Him. Nothing else will fulfill us like Him. Nothing else will deliver us, will give us refuge, is trustworthy, is changeless. Nothing else in all creation can compare to this God. He alone, as He says, there, there's nobody like me. Nobody. He's enough. But when we don't find Him to be enough, when we don't find Him to be the source it leads us to the shame of idols. And this is the next thing Isaiah brings up, the shame of idols. Look at verse 9. He says, All who fashion idols are nothing, 
and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. See, Isaiah right here, he switches gears. He says, I want you to see why you turn towards idols. It's because of one thing, emptiness. He translates it here as nothing, but, but the word in Hebrew right there that's translated nothing is tohu. And tohu means uh, formless or emptiness or chaos. And so it, it's actually the word that was used in Genesis chapter 1. And if you remember Genesis chapter 1, as the creation story is unfolding, God says that the earth was formless and void, right? It was chaos. It, it was emptiness. There was, there was a gap. There, there was a lack that needed to be filled. And so God fills the earth. But, but before that, there, there's emptiness. And Isaiah is saying, that is what, what brings the idols out of you, is that there's this emptiness in you, this lack, this, this nothingness, this chaos in your soul. And it's out of that emptiness that we fashion idols. And then what happens? He says, what happens in verse 11? He says, Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, uh, let them all assemble, let them stand forward, that they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. Did, did you hear it? He repeats it three times in there. Put to shame, put to shame, put to shame. Anytime the Bible repeats things over and over and over again, you got to pause because God is emphasizing something. He's giving us a warning. He's saying these idols, they're, they're going to promise things. They're going to say that, that you can be saved. They're, they're going to say that it's going to take away the pain. They're, they're going to say that it will make sense of all that you've been through. But listen, it doesn't end that way. It doesn't end that way. The way it's going to end is shame. Because idols promise salvation and they deliver shame. That's what they do every time. In fact, he gives us some insight into the process here in verses 12 through 20. We, we can't read it, but I'll summarize it for you. He says, it, just look at the way the idols are made. Now, he's talking about literal figurine idols. He, he says, you go and you see the craftsmen. He says, these craftsmen, they've been working tirelessly. They've been putting all these hours in, all their energy in, and, and they're, they're doing it diligently. They're drawing up plans. They've they got their pencils marked out and they've measured everything and they, they make it beautiful. And, and I think it's ironic that he says the most beautiful thing they can make is a human being because that, they're, they're stealing from God's own design. But, but that's another thing. I mean, he, he says they, they fashion it in the form of a human being and then they make it beautiful and give it its own little house. And, and then he says, where do they get all that from? They get it from the trees. He says they go find a cedar tree or an oak tree or some other tree and they plant it and they nourish it and they grow it and then they cut it down and they use half of it to make a meal and they start a fire and, and he says they sit back and they look at the fire and kick their feet up and say, man, this is the life. I'm living the dream. And then they use the other half of it and they fashion an idol and they fall down and worship the idol. And this is where he says, he says, the irony of it is that they used half of it to make lunch and they used the other half to be their Lord. And this is the shame. This is the shame he's bringing out. He's saying, without even knowing it, we all do that, right? We don't maybe fashion little figurines or have some kind of craftsman place in our house that we're making these things, but in the heart of our life, we are 
forming and shaping and crafting these things, and we do it out of the very other things that are part of our life. And the shame, listen, the shame is, how could I worship that piece of wood? How could I be the the kind of person who would ever think that that thing would save me? You hear it, right? It gets to this question, who who am I? Have you ever been caught in sin in such a way that, that you just ask yourself, who am I? Like, how did I get to that point? How did I let that happen in my life? How did I let that go on for so long? How did I get so foolish? That's what it's asking. He's getting at shame, and the key difference between guilt and shame is crucial here. Right? You've got to know a difference between guilt and shame. They're, they're kind of like cousins. They work together as we talk about sin, but they're very different. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is a focus on being. So guilt says that I've done something wrong, or I've done something bad, and shame says I am bad. You, you catch that? Guilt is the sense that we've made a mistake. Shame is saying that I am a mistake. It, it gets down to who I am and my identity. And I would say in our culture, right, there was a time in Western culture where the majority of people in the church talked about guilt, it was, it was what we talked about. We, we talked about guilt because guilt was the problem that we felt and guilt was the problem that we, we sensed we needed an answer to. And it made sense because we, we once lived in a culture where everyone kind of had a common understanding about what was right and wrong. Western culture with its kind of veneer of Christendom, we had this, this sense that, that everybody knew what was right and wrong. And so if you broke the standard... If you broke the standard and did something wrong, now you were guilty and you felt it and you knew it. Now fast forward to today, and we're in a much more pluralistic society, a society without any sense of standard of what is right and wrong. Everyone kind of has their own truth, their own standard. Now guilt makes no sense. Guilt makes no sense. But shame does. Shame makes a lot of sense. Because shame is not about what I've done. It's about who I am. Am I, am I that kind of person? I mean, you might have wrestled with that or heard people wrestle with that as, as we process things in our life. And, and you start to ask, am, am I really that kind of person? Am I the person that would do that kind of thing? Am I the person that, that would live that kind of life? Am I the person that would say that kind of thing? Because our idols promised that we would be somebody else, right? The idol promised that I could be somebody who was better with my family. The idol promised that I could be somebody better in my career. The idol promised that I could be somebody better with my friend or my coworker or whatever it was. And it made those promises and we hoped, we were, we were banking on it that we could be that person. And then we weren't. And the idol, what it actually shows is, is not who we can become, but who we actually are. Who we actually are. Right? It shows when it fails to save us that I'm the kind of person that would worship a block of wood rather than God. I'm the kind of person who, who would worship money rather than God. I'm the kind of person who would worship approval rather than God. 
Do you hear it? Like, this is us. This is not some, some joke in Isaiah 44. This is us. And, and part of the problem is, is uh, you have to wrestle with that sense of vulnerability because shame, it requires vulnerability to deal with it. In guilt, you need a little less vulnerability because guilt, you can just say, yeah, I messed up really bad that one time, but I'm really a good person who just occasionally makes mistakes. I was guilty of that thing. I did it, but, but that's not really who I am. Who I am is, is better than that. You see it? But shame, it, it requires a little more vulnerability, a little more courage to confess, I didn't just do this. It, this is who I am. This, this is who I am in, in the depths of my being as a sinner. I, I sin because I'm a sinner. This is part of my nature. Do you hear that? This is what it's getting at. And, and so it takes a lot of courage, a lot of vulnerability to go to that place and say, you know what? This is hard for me to admit. This is hard for me to even understand. But, but this is who I am. But when you step out, I, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but, but the way out of shame is that kind of humility. The way out of shame is that kind of vulnerability and, and courage to say, this is what I'm dealing with. This is who I am in my depths. But, but it, it, it's so counterintuitive because what we think the answer is, is I just hide. We, we think the answer is, I, I can just avoid it and, and protect myself and make sure nobody knows about this, not even me. And listen, some of us have been walking around with a lot of shame that we've never shared. Shame that we've never dealt with even in our own life. Because we haven't had the courage to, to be vulnerable with God and say, this, this is who I am. And, and listen, when you're able to do that, when you're able to do that, to say, this, this is in the depths of who I am, I, I am a sinner. Then, then it frees you for the next part of the truth which is the good news of the gospel, but you'll never get to the gospel until you're able to get that first step. Until you're able to say, I'm not just a good person who makes mistakes. I am a wretched person, a shameful person, but I have a Savior. I have a Savior. And this is where Isaiah goes next. This is the last point, is the call to remember. Look at verse 21. He says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Now return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now notice the contrast here, the contrast between the idols and the Lord. The idols, right? The idols or, or, or the idolater is busy forming his idol, but God says, I have already formed you. And then the idolater is bound by his idol, unable to deliver himself. And God says, Israel, you are my bondservant. And then the idolater prays to his idol, deliver me, save me. You are my God. And God says to him, no, I have redeemed you. I have delivered you. Right? The, the idolater bows down to this block of wood. And then God says, I'm calling all the trees of the forest to come rejoice over me. I have a greater purpose for the wood. It's not to be worshipped, it's to worship me. You see it? God is flipping the whole thing and He's saying, what you think is your identity is not your identity. This is the reality. 
This is the reality, and so he calls them to remember, and even more, he calls them to say that I have never forgotten you. You may have forgotten me, you may have pursued idols that you hoped would save you, but I have never forgotten you. In fact, I haven't waited for you. I haven't waited for you to return. I've actually moved forward towards you already to redeem you. And this is what he says. He, he says everything he's done is, is in this, this past tense. And actually, in Hebrew, it's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense is kind of like the past tense on steroids. It's, it's meaning that it was done once and for all. Like it's done and can never be undone. And he uses it twice here. In both verbs, he says, I have redeemed you. Right? I've, I've already done it. I've already blotted out your transgressions. This is what I've done. It's done in the past, never to be undone. It's who you are. It's who you are. And so now I'm calling you to return. Because the way you remove your idol is to remember who you are. The way you remove your idols is to remember your identity in Christ. See, God has has secured this identity, not waiting for us to return, but moving to rescue us. In Jesus, he took on the form of a man, not as an idol, but a man fashioned by God himself, fully God and fully man, come to save us. Colossians chapter 1 says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This God-man would do the greatest of miracles. He would take upon himself the shame of his people. The only way to deal with our shame was for God himself to be vulnerable. For him to be vulnerable, to be born, to be walking in obscurity, to be rejected and despised, to be naked on a tree as he died for our sin and shame. See, God, he says, I'm coming to take your shame, but not just take it, to give you my honor. Because the opposite of shame is honor, and for God just to remove our shame so that we can mess it up again is not enough. God says, I need to put on you my honor. And so what happens in the gospel is that Jesus gives to us his status. He gives to us his perfect record. He gives to us his righteousness so that there's this exchange. And now, not only have you been uh, covered, you've been blotted out of your transgressions. He says, I have now given you my record. I've given you my identity so that now before Christ, you were only a sinner. But now in Christ, you are both sinner and saint. You have this dual identity where I can confess with the truth that I am worse than I ever dared imagine. But I can also rejoice in the truth that I'm, I'm more loved in Christ than I ever dared hope. That's who I am. That's my truest identity. That I'm more loved. I'm more filled. I'm more satisfied that in Christ, in my truest identity, I can remember and be delivered. This is who I am. Professor Tom Long, uh, he tells this story uh, when he had a very memorable experience in church at his friend's church one time. It was Confirmation Sunday, which in some traditions, they have this confirmation process for young students who want to grow up and, and confess their faith in Christ for themselves. And so they usually have a class. And the class you, walks them through what they believe and, and how the gospel works in their life. And, and so on Confirmation Sunday, you usually go up before the congregation and kind of give an explanation of what you've learned as a student and confess your faith. And so this this Sunday was Confirmation Sunday at his friend's church, and all the students were lined up in the front who had been through the class. And they were going to show off a little bit of the scripture that they had memorized in the class, 
And so they had memorized parts of Romans chapter 8. And the teacher comes one by one down the line and asks them to recite their answer in response to the question. And so the teacher comes and she says, Joe, what can separate you from the love of God? And Joe replied, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. And Joe smiles and his parents on the front row are smiling and everybody in the congregation is proud of Joe that he's studied well and he's put his faith in Jesus. And, and so everybody's celebrating, they clap and she moves on to the next person. And she comes to the next person, which is Katie. And she asks Katie, Katie, can anything separate you from the love of God? And Katie goes on to recite herself. She says, no, nothing. I'm convinced that not this or this or this. And she recites the whole thing and everybody claps again. But then as she moves down the line, the congregation gets a little anxious. They get a little nervous wondering what's going to happen because at the end of the line was a young lady named Rachel. And she was a young, beautiful lady with this gorgeous smile, and, and she had Down syndrome, so everybody in the congregation who grew up knowing Rachel knew that she struggled with memorization. And so they're wondering, how can she memorize all of that scripture? And so it keeps going, and as it gets to Rachel, it finally gets to her turn, and the lady says, Rachel, what can separate you from the love of God? And Rachel flashed her big smile and leaned into the microphone and said just one word, nothing, nothing. And that said it all. Because Rachel knew her true identity as a child of God is I am loved. I am loved. I am satisfied. He is enough and nothing else can replace him. Nothing else can separate us from him. Nothing else can, can get in the way of me and my God because he is sufficient. Nothing. And so as we close today, I just want to ask you, have you, have you uh, got to the place where you realize God is enough? Because if you're not there today, here's the opportunity that God is calling us towards himself to say, there's nothing that can separate my love from you. If, if you find your identity in him, that's who you are. Whatever the sin may be, whatever the shame may be, whatever the suffering may be, the questions that you have, the, the wrestling, the doubts, whatever it may be, this is who you are. And God wants you to hear, if your faith is in him, he says, I don't care if you forgot me. I will never forget you. You can come. You can return because this is who you are. This is your true identity. And so idols may be pulling us. Idols may be promising to us. But nothing today, nothing can separate us or satisfy us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you for the joy set before you endured the cross. The joy knowing that you would be the one who would not only pay for our sin, but you would give to us your honor, your, your status, your reputation with God. And so as we stand before God, our Father looks at us with complete delight, absolute satisfaction and joy in us, and that gives you the greatest joy to know that you've brought your people close to your Father. And so, Lord, I pray as we 
continue to worship you today and as your Holy Spirit works in our lives that you would help us to remember that. Help us in the moment of temptation, in the moment that we hear these promises from all the things of this world that can tempt us to idolize and to worship and bow down, to know that you are enough, that there is no other stream, there is no other place we can go, none compare. You are God, God alone. So we pray, Lord, that you would work that truth deep into our soul for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet.